You can turn over to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. I want to speak to you this morning on the arrogance and the ignorance of self-centeredness. The arrogance and the ignorance of self-centeredness. Um, as you look at our society today, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that we live in a time where it's popular and it's actually accepted for people to promote themselves, to exalt themselves, to be lifting themselves up. Um, it's a time where pride in the human soul and heart and life is viewed as a virtue, not a liability. During the time of the writing of the Bible, particularly the Roman Empire, in that empire, pride was exalted as something to be grasped, something that you should have in your life. It was a virtue. And humility or the humble of heart were looked down upon as someone who is weak. You can see that things haven't changed much. <laughs> uh, you may even conclude that the exaltation of pride in self is really one of the marks of the de- demise of our society as we know it, as it was the demise of the Roman society. And if you stop and you think about it, any society cannot survive when pride just runs wild. And the reason is, is because society is made up of relationships, hopefully meaningful, ongoing, supportive relationships. But when a majority of the people look out for number one, uno, yourself, they look out and are committed to themselves more than anyone else, it really disintegrates all those relationships. And we can see that happening even before our eyes in the society we live in today. All relationships in our society are falling apart. Divorce is having its way in marriages. Children and parents are at strife with one another. Even friendships are breaking apart. And the reason is simply because all those interrelationships reach a point of stress when everybody's screaming for their own rights. (laughs) Everybody is consumed with self-glory, self-promotion, self-esteem, self-pride. Self-centeredness. Even in the business world you see it. You promote yourself. You're success-oriented, motivated. You build yourself up to look good so you can get more riches and get more esteem, feel better about yourself, buy a bigger house, whatever it might be, a newer car. And that strokes our ego. The whole thing is basically built upon the foundation of pushing yourself, having that ambition to go the next step, never be satisfied. And it's sad to say that today even that's crept into the church. There's a lot of self-promotion going on in the church. There's a lot of self-pride that has found its way into Christianity. People are now taking verses out of context, out of the Bible to promote themselves, self-esteem, self-glory, self-promotion, self-image building. You go into any Christian bookstore or even look online, you can find books on how to build a better self, how to look better. There are even books out there. All you have to do is read the titles of the popular Christian books of today, How to Have Your Best Life Now. Becoming a better you. It's your time. Love your life. Believe in the God that believes in you. I mean, we continue to build this case for self. And we live in a Christianity now, really, that thinks God is only there for our health, our wealth, our prosperity, happiness, to satisfy our felt needs and to give us a purpose-driven, fulfilled life. We know very little about sacrifice today, and I speak from my own heart as well. We know very little about the pain of suffering for Christ. All we want to do is eliminate all that stuff so that we can seek self-fulfillment. We are consumed with ourselves. We become consumed with the creature comforts of life, pleasure, wealth, travel. 
And in the process, somehow we began to believe that it's all about us, and so we begin to exalt our pride. And we've given place to pride in our lives, to self-fulfillment, self-glory, self-promotion, self-centeredness, and it's okay. We've forgot the subject of humility. We forgot the subject of suffering. When you look back at the Reformation, the time of the Puritans, you find the dominant sense among those men and women who lived during that time was a sense of brokenness, a sense of contrition. There was a trembling at the word of God. There was a humility, a meekness within the church that gave it great power. But now the church wants to be proud. Now the church wants to be fulfilled. The church wants to be indulgent. The church is more interested in having a party on Sunday mornings than having a worship service. It's more about the music than it is about opening God's precious word and reading the words of life and applying them to our lives. It's more about who has the fanciest light show or the best rock band. Today we've turned the tables, beloved, on the sin of pride and the virtue of humility. Literally, we've turned it upside down, making pride a virtue and humility what is seen as a weakness. But the Bible is very clear about these things, speaks very clear about them. I've listed several verses in your outline there for you. And uh, you can see those for yourself. I'm just going to touch on a couple of those. Proverbs 21.4 says everyone, or it says a proud heart is sin. Proverbs 16.5 says everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. These are strong words, beloved. Also says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance. 1 Timothy 3.6 says pride comes from the devil. 1 John 2.16 says it's part of the world. 1 Timothy 6.3 6, and 4 says that it's basically, it belongs to the false teachers of our day and age. So we don't have to read too far in Scripture to find out that pride is a sin. That it's an abomination before the Lord. It's to be hated. It's of the flesh. It's generated by the devil. It's part of the world system. And it belongs to false teachers. Certainly, pride should have no part of a Christian's experience. We shouldn't have the pursuit of self-glory, self-centeredness, or pride in our Christian lives. Matter of fact, in James 4, it says, God resists the what? The proud. In Isaiah 23, 9, it says that he brings the proud into contempt. Psalm 31, 23 says that the proud will be judged. Even in the book of Exodus, chapter 18, it says the proud will be subdued. Psalm again, 18, 27, they will be brought low. Daniel chapter 4 says they will be abased. Luke chapter 1 says they'll be scattered. Malachi chapter 4 says they'll be punished. Pride in the Bible is not something to be exalted. On the other hand, humility in the the context of the Word of God, is something that is exalted as a virtue. We understand that biblically, I think. I mean, I think if you asked any Christian, is it better to be prideful or is it better to be humble? Most Christians would end up saying, oh, it's better to be humble. It's more God-like to be humble. We know that in our heads, but I don't know if we know that in our experience. Micah 6.8 says, What does the Lord desire of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk what? Humbly before your God. Psalm 138 says, Though the Lord be high, he he has respect unto the lowly. Psalm 10, 17 says that the Lord hears the desire of the humble. Over and over, you can go throughout Scripture, just do a word search on the word humble, and hundreds and hundreds of verses pull up. One key verse is out of Proverbs chapter 15, 33. You should underline this in your Bible. You should memorize it. It says, before honor is what? Humility. 
Before honor is humility. If we could just get that into our brain and keep it there. Before honor is humility. Whenever we get the temptation or the urge to exalt ourselves, remember that verse. Before honor is humility. You want to be honored. The way to be honored is through humility. The ones that the Lord lifts up in life are the ones that are humble, not the ones that exalt themselves. That's why in Colossians it tells us that we are to put on humility. In 1 Peter chapter 5 it says we're to be clothed with humility. In Ephesians 4 it says that we're to walk in humility in our Christian lives as a way of life. Shouldn't be the exception. Before honor is humility, very important principle to apply in your life. If you ever desire honor from God, if you ever desire glory from God, it comes through the road of humility. That's just basic one-on-one Christianity. But somehow that flies in the face and it flies contrary to what we've been taught and what we believe in our own selves. It flies contrary to the earthly philosophy that we see around us, where pride is ever and always exalted. The lesson honor through humility of glory through suffering is something, especially here in the United States, the church really needs to be reacquainted with. We really need to come to terms with. But I want to encourage you this morning, we're not alone. There was people who lived with Christ every day, and they needed the same lesson. And that's basically the lesson of Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Because they too sought self-promotion, self-glory. Let's look at this text, this scripture. I'll read it for you and then we'll go through it. Verse 20 of Matthew 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder, came up to him with her two sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Pretty bold statement. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We're able. Sure, no problem. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit At my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was pressing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Incredible portion of Scripture. We see the idea here of the arrogance and the ignorance of self-centeredness. The Lord needed to correct his disciples just like he needs to correct us today. I don't know if that should make us feel bad or good. But he does so in this passage, and we're just going to look at a portion of it this morning, and we'll conclude it with part two next week. But this is a message that Jesus taught, and he had to reteach it over and over and over again to his disciples. 
Now remember, the disciples were a, a, a band of guys who basically forsook everything. They forsook their families. They forsook their careers. They forsook their home, their villages, and they went out and they followed the Savior. That's a good thing. They followed him knowing that whatever they gave up, though, here in this earth, would be more than replenished to them when they entered the kingdom. And so there was this sort of fleshly, materialistic element in their thinking. I mean, think about it. If I told you, hey, you know what? This week, this coming week, you can't eat anything any at all for the rest of the week. No food at all. You can drink some water. That's it. Most of you say, you're crazy. I'm not going to do that. What if I said, if you do that on Saturday, there'll be a check for a million dollars waiting for you. (laughs) Most of you, if not all of you, would at least try very hard (laughs) to go all week without any food. See, here the disciples had that kind of thinking when it came to the kingdom. And to be fair to them, the Lord kind of reinforced that in their minds, that kind of thinking. Think back in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. He told them, hey, you know what? You're going to sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, guys, when the kingdom comes. And everybody that forsakes your house and your brother and your sister and father and mother, wife and children, if you do it for my name's sake, you're going to receive a hundredfold back when you get to the kingdom. See, that encouraged that kind of thinking in their fleshly mind. That's not, Jesus didn't tell them that so that they would do that. He wanted them to have a balanced approach. But whenever Jesus talked about the kingdom and suffering, all they heard was kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Boy, we're going we're gonna to hit it big, man, hundredfold. Can you imagine? The kingdom will be inherited, Jesus told them. Eternal life will be inherited. There's a glorious promise of reigning in that kingdom. They're going to receive a hundredfold back what you sacrifice here. I mean, that kind of feeds anybody's flesh. And that's all they ever really heard. When Jesus heard about suffering, they didn't hear it. They were stuck on the kingdom. He was teaching them. He was throwing them suffering and pain and and sacrifice. They didn't hear that. All they caught was, wow, kingdom living. See, that's why they were so focused on the kingdom. That's why they were always asking Jesus, is it now? Is now when we're going to enter the kingdom? Is it going to happen tomorrow? They got caught up in that. They didn't hear anything about what he said as far as suffering. I mean, just look in our text in verses uh, 17 through 19. He just got done giving them his third and most detailed description of what's going to happen to him in the coming days. That he's going to be delivered over the chief priests and scribes. That he's going to be condemned to death. And then they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged, crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. Apparently they didn't hear that. Because here we are in verse 20 of the same chapter. After he gets done bearing his soul, they didn't hear any of the suffering. They didn't even ask him a question about that. It's kind of an odd behavior for somebody who's supposed to be so close to the Savior. He already told him in chapter 16, he told him in chapter 17, and now again in chapter 20, the most detailed account of his suffering. And what he's trying to get them to understand is, yeah, there's going to be a kingdom, but the way to the kingdom is through suffering. That's what you need to understand, guys. You have to die, and then you get the glory. You have to receive humility before there is honor, as we looked at in Proverbs 15.33. So he kept telling them over and over and over, he's going to suffer, he's going to die. And all they heard was, oh, wait till the kingdom comes. We're going to be blessed. Remember in chapter 8 of Matthew, if you think back when we went through that portion of Scripture, 
he had a bunch of people who were following him, Christ did, would-be disciples, and basically they thought that, hey, man, with a crowd this side, I'm sure he's going to get a super deal on the, uh, uh, you know, Hilton in Jerusalem or Galilee uh, embassy suites or something, so hey, we want to go with this guy. This guy's got it going on. Look at all these people that are behind him. And he had to turn around and he said, hey, before you follow me, you ought to think about this. I don't even have a place to put my head. I don't have anywhere to sleep tonight. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Just to let you know. So if you can't, if you're going to follow me, I'm not going to promise you anything as far as this world is concerned. Not even a place to sleep. That flies in the face of the Christianity that we hear today. Also in chapter 10, he even tells them that he, he had come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. To pit family member against family member. And if you weren't willing to lose your own life, you shouldn't follow him. In chapter 16, he told them once again that he, what he expected out of them And he says in chapter 16 that you need to take up your cross, which they understood very clearly as an instrument of death. (laughs) It wasn't the little gold thing you have hanging around your neck. It's an instrument of death. Take up your cross and follow me. So he told them basically, his followers, don't expect anything as far as worldly goods. Here's what you can expect if you follow me. You can expect to lose your life. You can expect to die if you follow me. And they got these lessons on suffering over and over and over and over again, but they were so focused on the blessings of the kingdom, they didn't hear it. They simply did not hear it. Even in chapter 18, when we looked at that chapter, that talked about the childlikeness of the believer, and he says to them, you know, if you want to come to my kingdom, guys, you have to become like a what? Little child. You have to be humble. You have to be as a child. You must deny yourself, he says. See, that's a true mark of a follower of Christ. It's not somebody who's exalting themselves or claiming about, oh, look at how God blesses me. Remember about the rich young ruler. He gave them that that story. If you want to come into my kingdom, then you have to abandon everything. And we saw that that man couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. I mean, that's a profound lesson on entering the kingdom, that it takes humility, that it takes self-denial, that it takes abandonment. In other words, they should have forsaken all, followed Jesus, and never asked anything about the kingdom. That's his point. Because if you're following me just to get into the kingdom, if that's the only purpose, then you better... Re-examine your heart. And if you doubt that they were that bold, look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. After they had that, and he says, you know, it's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. And they asked him, well, who then can be saved? With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Look at what Peter says in verse 27. Talk about a bold statement. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and we followed you. If he would have just stopped there, that would have been great. But like Peter, he never can. He's got to throw in one more question. What is his question? What then will we have? What's he asking Jesus? What's in it for me? Okay, we just walked away from our careers, our families, everything. You're telling us we're maybe even be martyrs. What's in it for me? That's what Peter's simply saying. What do we get out of this self-abandoned, following Christ, being your disciple thing? I mean, that's the wickedness of the human heart. As much as Christ taught on sacrifice and humility, here they are. Hey, Jesus, what am I going to get out of this deal with you? I mean, we've been faithful to you. We've left our career. We follow you. We do everything you say. What's in it for us, pal? Selfishness is incurable in this life. It's incurable. It'll be with you to the day you die. But there is hope. It can be controlled through the power 
of the Holy Spirit. It can't be eliminated as long as we're in this body because we're just given to self-centeredness. But it can be controlled. It can be refocused into Christ-centeredness. See, we suffer the same kind of selfishness and self-centeredness that the disciples suffered from almost 2,000 years later. That's the human heart. He wanted them to not seek glory, not to seek self-esteem, not to seek honor. He didn't want them to have promotion on their mind or popularity. Verses 17 to 19, he bears his soul and he tells them how he's going to die. And they totally miss it. They don't even ask him, well, gee, are you a little scared? Are you, are you looking forward to this? Are you not looking forward to what's going on? They don't even breach the subject with them. I'm here to tell you, nothing's changed, beloved. Jesus' message is the same. He still talks about suffering. He's still saying to our hearts, even in this society in which we live, take up your cross and follow me. He's still saying there's a life to be given in suffering. He's still telling us, yeah, you go and you give away your life in ministry. You abandon yourself to it. Give up everything you have in the world and you do what Christ wants you to do no matter what the cost. That's the message of Christ. He's still talking to us like that. But somehow we're still missing it. All we hear is the health and the wealth and the prosperity, the self-will, the self-love. The church looks at God's grace today as kind of a free lunch. I mean, later on, if you can imagine this, even after chapter 20, when he gives them this teaching, they're in the upper room meeting, and Judas is about to betray Christ. And he's telling them, Jesus is telling his disciples around the table, one of you will betray me. And what do they start doing? They start arguing who it is. And then they quickly change the conversation right in the middle of that, and they start arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. I mean, can you imagine the boldness of that? It's almost rude behavior. I trust that none of us are approaching our Christianity like that. That none of us are looking at the Christian life for what we can get out of it. Or how we can better be esteemed. How we can be more highly thought of. I want to tell you, nobody is outside of the reach of self-centeredness and pride. I'll be honest with you this morning, even in ministry, you fall into a trap. And pretty soon you, you find yourself, gee... Wish I had a bigger church. Wish I was a little better known. Wish people were calling me to speak. See, that's not what God has called us to, beloved. And he continually reminds me that every day. He's called us to humility. He's called us to suffer for his sake. As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, it says that if we suffer with him, what's going to happen? We're going to reign with him. That's a promise. Even in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, The Lord will make us perfect after we suffer a while. Corinthians tells us that the suffering of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which one day will be ours. See, as we suffer here, we're glorified there in the kingdom. But if we seek glory here, what happens? We forfeit it there. We're so twisted in our thinking, I think. The average Christian, I believe, would stumble over the theology of Isaac Watts, who wrote a hymn, and in the words of the hymn, he wrote this, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? I don't know about you, but I don't like be calling, be, to be called a worm. People don't like that. 
John Stott said this, I think you can put the quote up on the screen there, a chorus of many voices is chanting in unison today that I must at all cost love myself. He just went to be with the Lord. I mean, if you don't believe me, all you do is walk into the local church and you ask this question. Ask this simple question. Should a Christian love himself or herself? Should a Christian love himself or herself? You're going to discover quickly that most people respond to that question, oh yes, we have to love ourselves. Beloved, that's not biblical Christianity. Neither is it historic Christianity. Augustine wrote this in the city of God. He said, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. John Calvin wrote this, for so blindly do we rush into the direction of self-love that everyone thinks he has a good reason for exalting himself and despising all others in comparison. There is no other remedy than to pluck up by the roots those most noxious pests, self-love and the love of victory. This the doctrine of Scripture does. How does it do it? Here's what he said. For it teaches us to remember that the endowments which God has bestowed on us are not our own but his free gifts, and that those who plume themselves upon them betray their ingratitude. What you have, beloved, directly from the hand of God. I mean, they're even changing the words in some of these hymns today to make them more positive so they don't offend anybody. Someone wrote this, the old cross and the new cross. It says, the old cross slew men, the new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned, the new cross assures. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh, the new cross encourages it. The old cross brought tears and blood, the new cross brings laughter. The flesh smiling and confident, preaches and sings about the cross. Before that cross, it bows, and toward that cross, it points with carefully staged histrionics. But upon that cross, it will not die. And the reproach of that cross, it stubbornly refuses to bear. The arrogance and ignorance of self-centeredness. I want us to look at a couple points as we look at our text for this morning. Just a couple brief points. The first being the petition. Let's look at the request that the mother made of Christ here in our text. It says in verse 20, then the mother, after he just talked about his death and suffering and everything. She just kind of approaches with her two sons. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her two sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. They want something from the Lord. Right on the heels of his bearing his soul, she just puts that aside and says, come on, boys, we're going to go talk to the Lord. Now remember, they're, they're on their, their way here up to Jerusalem from Jericho. And here we have the arrival of James, John, the sons of Zebedee, and their mother. If you look over at Mark chapter 10, it tells us the same situation in verse 35 to 41. There the mother is not mentioned. There it's just James and John. So she didn't do this on, their, on her own. All three of them got together and said, hey, let's go approach the Lord. Matthew seems to focus on her. Mark focuses on James and John. 
But the request is all three of them coming to Christ. So they ask, basically, he asks, well, what, what would you like? What do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. That's the request. Talk about pride. Talk about self-centeredness. They don't want to just be in the kingdom. Where do they, they want to sit in the chief place in the kingdom. And they're not afraid to ask. What are they seeking? They're seeking self-glory. They're seeking self-promotion. Seeking honor. They're seeking esteem. They want to be right next to Christ. So everybody can look at them and say, oh, they must be real spiritual sitting right next to the Savior. Right next to the Lord. Wonder what they did to get there. They were very bold. I mean, they were called the sons of thunder. A lot of people think, oh, you know, they were, um, James and John were kind of humble guys. No, they weren't. They were very bold. They weren't passive at all. But I want you to understand what they're playing with here. They're kind of doing a little power play with Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and John tell us that when Jesus was being crucified at the cross, at the foot of the cross, there were three women standing there. Matthew, Mark, and John each give an account of that. They give us the names of those women. If you look at all those accounts, Matthew says that there was Mary Magdalene, and there was Mary, the mother of uh, James and Joseph, and there was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Those three women are at the cross. Mark describes the three women this way. There was Mary Magdalene, same as Matthew said. There was Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, just as Matthew said. And then it says there was Salome, which must have been the name of the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And then Mark gives us her name. John says this. There was Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, then Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. So we know who Mary Magdalene is in John's account. That's pretty clear. We know Jesus' mother, Mary. Well, the wife of Cleophas must be Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Mary, the mother of James And Joseph, the same as Matthew and Mark, that leaves us with one who is called Salome, the sons of Zebedee. And in that account, she's called Jesus' mother's sister. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? James and John said, hey, let's... Let's get mom. She's Jesus' mother's sister. Surely she can make some inroads into this advancing ourselves in the kingdom business. They thought they had their aces in the hole. They were his cousins. Their mothers were sisters. So they think, hey, Heck, the rest of these guys, let's go. (laughs) Get mom and let's make our move right now. What is it? It's manipulation. It's a power play. It's leverage. They wouldn't just come, the two of them. They had to get their mommy to help them out. And look at what it says. It says that when she comes, what does she do? It says, kneeling before him. In other words, she came and worships him. She kneels down before him. She treated him like a king. And she desired something from him. Mark tells us she wouldn't even tell us what it was that she wanted. She went to Christ and she says, I want to ask you something. Says she asked him for something. 
And it's almost as if the text is saying she's asking for something without telling him what it is. Did you ever have your kids do that to you? Can I ask you a question? Sure. Can I have something if I ask for it? Well, what is it? Well, I don't want to tell you. You have to tell me if you'll give it to me first. I mean, it's kind of funny, but I've seen kids do that before. So she comes worshiping the king. She kneels down before him, and then she says, I want something from you, but I don't really want to tell you what it is yet because she's kind of nervous about this. Mark says that she didn't want to tell him. Just tell me you'll give it to me first. Then I'll tell you what it is. She comes like a little kid. Very childish approach. She probably knew that there was some illegitimacy in her request anyway. That's probably why she's acting this way. She doesn't really want anything for herself. She's asking on behalf of her sons. But they wanted it so badly, they got their mom to do this for them. And it was common for a king to make statements like you can have anything. Think of John the Baptist. Think of Herod who said to the dancing girl who got uh, John the Baptist's head, I'll give you anything you want, right? Just ask, anything. He didn't know that she was going to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a plate. But that was a common practice in that day. It kind of made you feel more powerful. Ask whatever you want and I'll grant your wish. Well, that's how she's treating Christ. She's thinking, maybe if I build him up and I make him feel good enough, my sons can get there in his left and his right hand. Very manipulative. I mean, she knows. We know that she believes in the kingdom. We know that she believes in Christ. We know that he's, she believes that he's going to do what she, he said he's going to do. But apart from all those things, it's actually a very sinful request because it focuses on self. It focuses on promoting herself and her sons. We want to sit at your right and left hand, Jesus, in your kingdom. I mean, can you imagine going to Christ and saying this? Of all the people who ever lived Jesus, of all the people who ever served God, I believe I should be at your right hand. What a bold statement. I mean, what would give them that idea? Well, they're cousins. They probably thought that they had a certain intimacy with Christ. They're in the inner circle. Peter, James, and John, right? Peter's always getting rebuked. He's always opening his mouth too long and the wrong time. So they thought, hey, now let's make our move. You know, the church still suffers from this. We want to be exalted. We want the chief seats. I've seen people within the church who come into the church and they want to have preeminence, the scripture speaks of. They love the chief seat, just like the Pharisees did in the synagogues. Where they can sit above the men and have them call them father and all that, as in Matthew 24 or 23 talks about. There's always that self-seeking. That's part of our flesh. There's always that people in the, in the church of Christ that want to be esteemed and want to be known and They can even cloak it in, well, I'm working for my future reward. But you know what? The Lord rejects that kind of heart. He rejects it totally. Totally. 
Look at what he responds with. Look at his response in verse 22. First of all, he talks about their ignorance. He says in verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. You don't have a clue, folks. You don't know what you're asking for. They really didn't understand the concept of glory and serving and servanthood. They were just focused on the kingdom. And look at their ambitious hearts when he questions them. He says, first of all, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I'm, able, that I'm going to drink of? Look at their response. Without even batting an eyelash. Oh, yeah, sure we can. No problem. <laughs> it's no big deal. I mean, talk about being a little overambitious. A little over-self-confident. See, that's the problem today. We we get a little too confident in our flesh. Jesus says, you don't have a clue what you're even asking for, and now you're saying that you could drink of the same cup? You're saying you want your boys at my right hand and my left hand? You don't even have a clue what it means to suffer yet. Who's going to sit at those places? Well, Scripture tells us that it's those who are going to suffer the most here in this life for the cause of Christ. So you better think twice before you request the left and right hand of the throne of Christ. 2 Corinthians tells us, as we read before, for our light affliction, it says, is it light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's affliction. That's what that is. So when we're afflicted, not physically necessarily, not illness and all those things, but when we're afflicted for the cause of the gospel. See, sometimes we're afflicted just because we're sick. Sometimes we're afflicted because of the carelessness of our own life and our own sin. That's not going to get us anywhere. But when we're afflicted for the cause of the gospel, that's when we are building up glory in eternity. As we learned in the earlier part, in the labors of the vineyard parable, that we're all going to receive the same eternal life. It doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or two minutes. It really doesn't matter. You're all going to have eternal life. How God sorts out the rewards and all that stuff, only he knows. But somehow, those people who suffer greatly in this life will receive more glory in heaven than those who don't. So he says, are you able to drink of that cup? And they just say, sure, no problem. Very bold response out of ignorance. So he says to them in verse 23, well, I want to assure you, my friends, you will drink my cup. at least a little bit of it. You're not going to drink the whole thing because no human being could, but you're going to understand suffering when this life is over. He basically told them what to look forward to. I don't think they got it. That cup refers to the the whole suffering of Christ. And they thought, hey, we can deal with this no problem. He says, well, you're going to drink a portion of that cup. But then he explains to them his own inability to grant their, his wish, their wish. He says to them, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. Once again, what's he modeling for them? He's modeling submission. He's modeling even the Son of Man is in submission to the Father. 
I mean, we, we can't really comprehend that. There are a lot of people who charge into things without even thinking about it, think they can do it. No problem. They have excessive confidence in themselves. I talked to a pastor one time, and we were talking about ministry things. Somehow we got on the subject of preparing for Sunday. And I I just couldn't believe what he told me. He said, oh, he goes, you know, pretty much I'm really gifted in that area. So like, you know, and they weren't obviously an expository teaching church. But he said, you know, it's kind of, I'll get up and open the Bible and it's kind of, I'll be doing my devotions during the week and whatever the Lord lays on my heart, I can fill up a good 60 minutes. I'm like, with no notes, nothing? Oh no, I, I, you know, I'm busy promoting the church during the week. I don't really have time to put all that together. So, you know, sometimes I'll have a, a brief outline, but usually it's just a, a title. Sometimes it's not even that. Because it just gives me the freedom to kind of practice, you know, my gifts of communication. I'm thinking, wow. Incredible. Very gifted speaker, by the way. I mean, he definitely was that. See, there's a danger about feeling too confident. These guys just were off the hook with their kind. Oh, we're not, no problem. We're going to drink this cup. Not an issue. I mean, I think a lot of us have excessive confidence. There's nothing wrong with being confident in your gifts and your abilities, things like that. I'm not saying you just sit around like a, you know, wet piece of bread or something. But if you think you can do it in your own strength, beloved, you're missing it. You can't. It's like Peter. Remember when Jesus said, you know, everybody's going to forsake me. What's Peter do? No, no, no. Oh, everybody. Maybe everybody else, Lord, but not me. I'm not going to forsake you. And before the cock crowed, he was denying the Lord. It tells us what happened to James and John, like all the rest in Matthew 26. It says that when Jesus was taken prisoner, what happened? Where did the disciples go? They fled. <laughs> wow, maybe they couldn't drink this cup. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it all the way. They were trying to do it in their own ability. So he says to this woman, he says, you know, lady, you don't even know what you're asking for. Can they drink what I'm about to drink? Sure, they can, no problem. A little too confident. You don't climb God's ladder of honor and glory by overstating your own uh, capabilities and abilities. You don't talk your way into the kingdom. You don't do it by manipulating people either or intimidating people. And he responds to them and he simply says, you're going to drink, you're going to taste, not the whole thing. And it came true too. James was faithful, wasn't he? Acts chapter 12, he was the first dying martyr. John was faithful. He was the first living martyr, exiled to Patmos to spend the rest of his life. They did drink of that cup. They knew the fellowship of his sufferings. And it was through the power of the Holy Spirit that they got to that point. Well, he says here that I'm unable to grant you this request. He's unable. He says, I'm in submission to the Father. I'm coming to suffer. I'm emphasizing my submissiveness to the Father. Hopefully you'll get this picture. That the Father's the one passing out the rewards, not me. He's the one that gives the ultimate glory. He's the one who makes the decision to whomever it's been prepared. Well, look at the rest of the group. How do they deal with this? It says in verse 24, And when they heard it, the ten heard it, it says they were indignant at the two brothers. They had resentment toward them. 
And if you just stop there, you're thinking, wow, at least there's some spiritual in this group of this band of brothers here that are following Jesus. They knew that they, they were wrong, that James and John shouldn't have used their mother as kind of this power play with Jesus and trying to do that. They were upset over that. They were looking at them saying, oh, how sinful they are. No, they weren't. <laughs> they weren't doing that at all. They were indignant. In other words, they were mad because they got to it first. They were elbowing each other going, man, why do we think of that? I mean, all you have to do is read Luke 22, 24. They're all arguing about it. They weren't spiritual at all. They were arguing about it at the Last Supper. They were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And they were mad at James and John for simply going in there instead of them. And so the Lord says, you know what? I need to teach you something. And he says in verse 25, look at the requirement. Jesus uses this situation, tense situation. They're arguing about who's the greatest here to set forth the conditions for true greatness, which we'll get into next week. But he says in verse 25, Jesus called them to himself and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. What's he doing? He's giving them an illustration He's pointing to greatness, but he's saying, you know what? There's good greatness and bad greatness. There's a greatness that's viewed by the Gentiles. And what does that end up being? It's lording it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And then he says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Exercise dominion over them. It means to lord it over. Hold it over their head. It's talking about a dominant dictatorship. My way or the highway. It's like the, the men who are leading the, the dictator governments all around the world now are kind of quaking in their boots because they're seeing them fall one after the other. When you think of the world dictators, those who are dictators over their people. They rule their people with fear. They rule their people with domineering, domineering just dictatorship. You can find it in businesses. You can find it in churches. There are some churches where, you know what? I mean, they exalt the pastor to the point of, I mean, there's nothing this man could do wrong, which is just totally outrageous. I've seen churches to the point where the pastor or elder or whoever is in charge does something wrong. And they still don't even register. Say, well, you can't touch God's anointed. I'm going to continue with my ministry even though I'm sleeping with my secretary. I've repented. Now let's move on. And the people let it go. First Peter 5 says, don't lord it over them. That's not our way in the kingdom. You don't do it that way. And in verse 25 where it says, and they that are great, the chief ones, speaks of their personality. You say, well, why do people follow people like that? You see some of these people on TV, and they're just kind of wacky people. Some of these ministries, they're always begging for money, and they always got this, and they always got one scandal after the other. Why do people follow them? It's because of their personality. They have charisma. I mean, I've seen churches grow just incredibly Simply because they got a new pastor who's got a great personality. And maybe the guy pastors for three or four years and the church grows under his leadership and guidance and personality and then he moves on to a bigger church and he leaves that church in the dust and what happens to that church? It dies. Why? Because the personality's not there anymore. 
You know, that's why it's so important to have your priorities right when you're coming to a fellowship, when you're coming to church. Why are you coming? You're coming because you're in love with Christ, you're in love with His Word, you're in love with His people? Or are you coming for other reasons? So maybe somebody will see you there. We have to be careful today. We want to make sure that none of those motivations creep in to our heart. I remember when I first came to this church back in 1998, I went out to either lunch or breakfast with one of the pastors here in our community. He sat across the table and he said, oh, you, you, you're at Grace. Yeah. Mmm. Raised his eyebrows. I looked at him and go, what's that mean? <laughs> oh, nothing. Then he said this, I'll give you a year. Maybe a year and a half. Why would you say that? You know, I was just taken back by his comment. Oh, he goes, it's not the church. It's just this area. It eats up pastors like crazy. You know, you go through pastors. He goes, I'm the, you know, I've been here for 30 years. See him come and go. That's just what happens. Matter of fact, if you're here two years, I'll buy you dinner. Now that I think about it, he never did buy me dinner, but... You know what? If I was focused on purely church growth, if I was focused purely on wanting to be liked or lifting myself up or exalting myself, I think he would have been right. He would have been right. But I understood very early in ministry that ministry is not about having a big church. Ministry is not having about, about having a big youth group or whatever. Ministry is about simply knowing what God wants you to do and doing it. And if, and if you can find that place in your heart where you're doing what God wants you to do and you're doing it faithfully, all this other noise that goes on around you I mean, not that you grow complacent. Everybody wants a bigger church. Everybody wants to see more people saved. I mean, I'd be silly to say, I, I, I didn't want that. All of us want that. But you know what? Last time I checked, this is Jesus' church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's God's church. And if God wants us to be a church of 40 to 60, 80 people, then that's what we'll be. If he wants us to have 600 people, that's what we'll have. But see, it's in his time not in my time it's not in your time it's his plan not our plan so if he's called us just to be a haven here for those that are suffering those that are hurting maybe they come here for a while heal up and move on maybe that's our role i don't know doesn't mean we back off on reaching those for christ that should be our goal that should be our desire each and every day But as long as we're coming together as God's people and we're fellowshipping around the Word of God and we're hearing the Word of God taught in a way that makes sense, that's true to the the text of Scripture, then we need to be thankful that our church at least is a healthy church. There's not infighting. There's not people in the choir sleeping with each other. There's not... Things going on, rumblings constantly. I mean, it's not perfect, don't get me wrong. But when you look at what's out there, beloved, God's doing a work here. And we have to be content with that. It's hard to do, trust me. It very it is, because it's almost it feels like it's a reflection on yourself at times. But then God Reminds me, no, you just continue to do what God has called you to do. You be faithful, 
and you just minister to the people his word and help them when they need something and don't worry about the rest of the stuff. I think God really desires us all to be at that place where we want to be used by him. And he will exalt us, but only when we come to him with humble hearts and wait on him to bless us in a way that he sees fit. May not meet our demands. May not fit into our box. The last time I checked, God's in control, we're not. Amen? Amen. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the example of the leadership of Christ and all that he gave. And Father, we pray that we would, as the reformers did, find our way back to the path to greatness through humility and brokenness and selflessness and get off the path of self-centeredness. Help us to stop asking ourselves what's in it for us. We thank you that we have a church that's committed to you, committed to love each other, committed to pray for each other, committed to learn from your word. And yet, Father, I I pray that there's so much more that we could be doing. And I just ask that you would help us to be patient. You would help us to desire your will, not ours. And Father, we pray for those who may be here today that haven't taken that step of faith with you. We pray that you would work in their heart, that you would cause them to understand that this is not a a wimpy decision. This is a decision that requires much from us. Those disciples that followed Christ ended up martyrs for him. And you expect no less from us, even though we live in a free country where that's probably less likely to take place. Lord, your word says one day that will be the case. Those who follow Christ will be martyred once again. I pray you would teach us the path of suffering. That you would find us fit to have us in your kingdom one day in glory. We ask that you would bless the remainder of this day and bless this message to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.